Go ahead and take a seat. If uh, we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and I have the privilege of serving as the teaching pastor for LifePoint Worthington. Super grateful that you are here with us today. And uh, hey, if this is your first time here, or maybe the last couple of weeks you've been checking us out, wanting to know, like, what is my next step? Should I take a next step? One of the easiest ways to begin that conversation and get a little bit more information about what we are doing here, what we believe God has called us to do here at LifePoint Worthington, is to take out your phone, and you can scan that QR code that's on one of the seats right in front of you. That will bring you to a landing page, lpguest.com, and you'll find a number of things there. You'll find a welcome card, and I'd ask that you take a moment just to fill that out. Again, if this is one of your first times here, uh, we have a uh, $5 donation that we'd like to make uh, to one of our partner ministries in your honor, just as a way of saying thank you for being here and taking time to fill out that card. The other thing you'll find there uh, is our notes section, and so if you want to follow along in the notes and uh, maybe get some uh, additional resources from what we're talking about today, you can follow along on that notes page. Again, you can find that on the, uh, the landing page, lpguest.com, just by che- uh, scanning that QR code. Um, uh, one thing I want to let you know about, uh, and this is, this is not part of my sermon yet, so uh, this time does not count against me. Uh, I want to let you know that uh, we believe that God has called us uh, to seek 1% of the city of Worthington uh, coming to faith in Jesus here at LifePoint Worthington. Uh, and so that is what we are praying for. Worthington is about 14,000 people, which means we are praying that over the course of our existence as a church, we would see 140 people uh, move from spiritual darkness to spiritual light to find the transforming, uh, transformed life that is available in Jesus. And so we've been praying that God would entrust to our care 1% of the city of Worthington. But in addition to that, we have also been asking uh, that the Lord would allow us to send away 1% of our church, that we would not just be a gathering church, but a sending church to other gospel works in our city, in our nation, and uh, to the ends of the earth. We're going to take some time uh, later on in the year to talk about specifically what that looks like. But uh, next week, we have a unique opportunity as uh, a local church family uh, to be able to send uh, some from our network of churches in Columbus who are going to be planting a new church in Cleveland. And so they're going to be here next week. We're going to get a chance to hear a bit about what they're doing and pray for them as a church. But I also have a challenge for us. And this is going to stretch us, especially as uh, we are a young church ourselves. I want to take, over the next two weeks, I want to take a portion of our offering uh, that we uh, are gathered here at LifePoint Worthington and bless this family with $1,000 as they go and begin to plant this new work. That money would go to uh, making sure they have some moving expenses covered, that they have some, uh, a little bit more financial breathing room as they're getting started. And this is a way for our church to say, we are about the kingdom of God, and it is not just just what is happening here, uh, but what God is doing through other gospel preaching churches throughout uh, the country and throughout the world. This is going to be a way for us to exercise the muscle of generosity as a local church. And I want that value built into our church family from the beginning, that it is not just about us here 
but we are for other Jesus-loving churches across the city, across the nation, and across the globe. So uh, above and beyond, this week and next week, I'm going to challenge us uh, that we would give generously. Uh, and again, we want to uh, take $1,000 from that offering over the next two weeks and bless this family next week while they are here. All right, now uh, we can go ahead and get going. We are in a series that we've been calling Broken Mirrors. Uh, and so far, I think this has been a super interesting book for us to study. It's based out of the New Testament book of Hebrews uh, in this iconic section, chapter 11, called the Hall of Fame of Faith, where the author references all of these different characters from the Old Testament and holds them up as a model of what a life of faithfulness before God looks like. And what's been super interesting in this series, uh, and you may have picked up on this if you've read this passage before, is that all of these characters that uh, are referenced in Hebrews chapter 11, every single one of them uh, has, has a past. All of them have some uh, brokenness in their story. Some of them are straight up messed up folks, right? They are all far from perfect. In this list in Hebrews 11, we find cowards, liars, cheaters, murderers, radical vigilantes, it is honestly a very bizarre group of people uh, to be held up in the scriptures and say, uh, somehow these people model, demonstrate an aspect of what a faithful life looks like. See, but I think what's interesting about this is it consistently points to the mystery of God's kindness to use imperfect people to reflect a perfect God. And so as we're talking about some of these references in Hebrews 11 and using them like portals back to the full story that they reference, we're looking at how these stories connect to our core values here at LifePoint. So just to catch you up, in week one, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel and talked about our gospel identity, that in Jesus, we are made new. In week two, we looked at uh, the story of Samson and talked about reaching priority, that in Jesus, we are missionaries. We are sent from this place to be God's ambassadors in our city and in our world. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Moses' story and talked about authentic community, that in Jesus, we are family. Today, we're going to look at part of David's story and talk about personal ministry. It's the idea that in Jesus, we are servants. So if you're new to LifePoint, uh, this is a great series for you because uh, we're going to uh, try and paint a picture of what we want to be about as a local church. And just like every one of the characters in Hebrews chapter 11, we, LifePoint, we are flawed. We don't pretend to have all of this stuff figured out, that we'd nail it every time. But our hope is that we would more and more embody these values in the life of our church. And if you've been around LifePoint for a while, you, you, you need this series too. We all need this series. It's a reminder of what we uh, do and why we ought to uh, let these values shape us and challenge us so that we don't just end up as a church that's kind of coasting, just existing for the sake of existing, drifting away from what we really believe God has called us to do. And I think the value we're talking about today is vital. Personal ministry. And it's not just because it's one of those messages where I get to talk about a bunch of serving opportunities in our church, uh, though I am 100% going to do that eventually. Uh, it's because deep down, there are some deeply held myths about serving that we need to confront in our own hearts 
and minds. See, in a typical message like this, you walk away with a vague impression that uh, if you're going to be connected to a church, you probably ought to be serving that church some way and somehow. But the answer to why you ought to be serving is generally left hiding between the lines. It's left for you to figure out on your own, come to your own conclusions. And the danger is that if we land on the wrong answer for why we ought to serve, it can have devastating consequences. So here's what I want to do today. We're going to look at part of this story of David, but I want to explore three myths about why we should serve as followers of Jesus. Three myths about why we should serve as followers of Jesus. That myth number one, that God needs you to serve. Myth number two, that the church needs you to serve. Myth number three, that I need you to serve. And we'll see how each one of these ultimately misses the mark. And to do that, we're going to look at that classic story, uh, one that I'm willing to bet most of you have heard of, but I, one I, I don't think is really about what we tend to think it's about, the story of David and Goliath. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us here today. So thankful that you've brought us into this place, that before we walk in, you are one who knows what we need before we even open up our mouths to ask. You are like the good father, Jesus says, who, who delights to give good gifts to his children. And so we pray that as we are here, uh, that we would be receptive to your word, that in preaching, this would be your truth spoken after you, and that, uh, like the prophet Isaiah says, your word would not return void to you, that you would accomplish your purpose in our lives through your word today. We ask that you not let us leave here uh, unchallenged uh, and untransformed by the power of the gospel. Lord, where we need to be confronted, would you do that by your Holy Spirit? Where we need to be comforted, would you do that by your Holy Spirit and by the community we have here God, I pray that you would do the hard work of heart work today, especially as we have a conversation that so often uh, can lead us to just feel a bit anxious or guilty. Father, I pray that we would come to know the unconditional love you have for us in and through Jesus, that this would be a love we rest in and cherish Father, as we are gathered here today, uh, we pray for the many, many gospel preaching churches in central Ohio. Uh, Lord, today specifically, we lift up some of the other uh, LifePoint uh, campuses today. We pray for Pastor Matthew and uh, LifePoint Worthington. We pray blessing on him now as they're uh, joining at the same time to preach, pray, and proclaim Jesus in Westerville. Lord, we pray for a blessing on them as they search for a new building. God, we pray that you would go before them and richly provide for their needs as a church community. And would many, many, many become followers of Jesus in and through the work there, not to their credit, but to your fame. And so, Lord, we're grateful to you. We love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started with David and Goliath. It is the underdog of underdog stories, right? 
I mean, let, let me set the scene a little bit just so we understand what's happening here. The Israelites are uh, camped out across the valley from their historic enemies, the Philistines. If you can picture it for a moment, use your sanctified imaginations, and uh, you have to see each group on opposite sides of this great mountain range, and there's a valley in between, and they're, they're both looking down at the valley below. And, uh, now, now, and they've worked out a bit of a system that seems to work in everybody's benefit at this point. This was uh, somewhat common in the ancient world. You see, instead of having both armies come to clash, resulting in horrific casualties on both sides, they have elected uh, to use something much more like a duel. Uh, The best warrior from each side will fight the best from the other, and whichever side wins uh, the battle, uh, or whichever side wins the fight, wins the battle, and the others become prisoners and warriors, and the others are uh, winners. You You see how that works? So the Philistines, uh, they send a man named Goliath, uh, which is now ubiquitous for huge. Uh, and uh, for good reason, the way that he is described in 1 Samuel 17 is insane. He is an enormous man and would have been uh, a terrifying human being. Like it would be like me trying to fight Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> it's not funny. That's terrifying. <laughs> he would get really hurt. Now, uh, what's interesting at this point uh, is that, again, we, we, we think of this as this, this underdog story, and, uh, but Israel has someone who should be able to go out and fight. They have someone, their, their current king, Saul. Interestingly enough, little detail we miss sometimes, Saul is described as basically the best of the best that Israel has to offer. Look how he's first introduced uh, earlier in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. You can see it on the screen behind me all the way down uh, the end of verse 2 from his shoulders upwards. He was taller than any of the people. He's more handsome than any of them. Right? The, the, Israel has their own kind of Goliath. And so they, uh, you have these two prized fighters who should be able to duel off, but Saul won't head out on the field. Right? He, he, even he sees this as a basically hopeless situation. And so for 40 days, Goliath is out there taunting them. And on the 41st day, David shows up. He hears Goliath and immediately starts asking questions about, uh, you know, what anyone's doing about this guy. And if no one is willing to fight, he'll suit up. He'll suit up. And at this point in his life, David is a shepherd, uh, probably not fighting age, because if he were like, if he were at fighting age, he'd be out on the battlefield with his brothers. But he's also not a little kid. Sometimes we have this image of him as like this seven-year-old who goes up and fights this grown man. I don't think that's quite the right image either. In fact, when he is making his case, another detail we skip over sometimes, when he's making his case to the king about why he is qualified to go out and fight Goliath, he shares this little detail. 1 Samuel 17, verse 34, uh, David said to Saul, hey, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a, uh, took a lamb out of the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of the mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him. And he killed a lion with his bare hands. <laughs> Seems pretty legit to me. I, I mean, it's still an underdog story. Okay, still an underdog story. But, you know, if it's me, I'm not going to write him off too fast. We have an artist rendition of this scene, what David looked like at this time in his life. Let me show you a picture of what we think David looked like. (laughs) Pretty intense. Uh, And I I think you know how the story ends, right? David picks up five stones 
a sling, uh, takes aim and kills Goliath. And that's the story. So the point today is go be like David, fight the giants in your life. No. I think there's more to this story than that. There's some things, and if you've been around here for a while, you know, like I like looking behind the curtains a little bit, behind the scenes to see some other things that pop. And there's a few odd details of this story that just seem odd. They don't fit. You see, I think sometimes we uh, have to be really careful with stories like David and Goliath because they become so familiar that we unintentionally isolate them as standalone stories. They don't really pay much attention to the details anymore. We kind of read these stories on autopilot. Have you ever had that experience where you're driving home from work, you get home, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I don't remember driving at all. Anyone been there? You kind of, you're so familiar with it, you've just done it on autopilot. Sometimes it happens to us when we're reading through like familiar parts of the Bible. It's just on autopilot. We read through it. We don't really pay attention to much of the details. That's what happens often in 1 Samuel 17. You know, what's interesting is that if you follow all the details closely, what you're going to realize is that there's some chronology issues in chapter 17. Actually, I'll explain more about this in a second. Actually, we have to see that chapter 17 takes place before the events recorded in chapter 16. It's out of order a little bit. We may not have known that. Now, I'm not going to have time to unpack all this today. Probably going to have some space. If if you have specific questions about that, I'd be happy to uh, pick another time to chat through some of those questions. I'll sum it up this way, because this is actually a very big problem uh, among Old Testament scholars and in the academy trying to fit together chapter 16 and chapter 17. Basically, the problem works like this. In chapter 16, we meet all of David's family. The narrator introduces us to them uh, for the first time, like we've never met them before. Uh, It's very typical of how a writer in the Bible would introduce new characters. We get his uh, father, we get his brothers, we get part of his backstory. We even find that David meets Saul for the first time. They've clearly never met before uh, in chapter 16. Here's the problem though. When you get to chapter 17, the narrator of the story immediately again reintroduces us to all of David's family as if we've never met them before, never heard about them before. David uh, apparently meets Saul for what looks like to be the first time uh, again, and it seems pretty clear that they have not met before. And all of this problem means that they, it cannot, both, both stories cannot be true in the order that they're told. Chapter 16 cannot be uh, precede chapter 17 chronologically. It's a, it, it, it's a problem, and it, it, it's convoluted, I know. But here's the point. If we take a step back for a minute and look at this from a bird's eye view, the point of this story is going to start to look quite a bit different. Instead of reading it in isolation, we need to read this in connection to chapter 16. Has anybody seen, um, this is hands down the greatest movie ever made, Uh, National Treasure with, what's his name, Nicolas Cage, right? Anybody seen this movie? Yeah, almost everybody, because it's a great movie. Remember the scene where he's looking at the back of the Declaration of Independence and he's got to put on those glasses and uh, each time he puts on the glasses, he has to put on new lenses and new things pop in the story on the back of the the map that is definitely probably on the back of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) 
Well, sometimes we have to do that with, with the scriptures. There's no special glasses, but we have to take a step back and look at this from just a different vantage point and new things are gonna pop. That's what's gonna happen. Jump back in your Bibles a page or two uh, to chapter 16. It's going to change how we view chapter 17. See, uh, Saul, we have already met him. He is the current king in chapter 17. He has just been rejected by God as king of Israel in chapter 16. And Samuel, the prophet whom the book is named after, uh, is sent to David's family to anoint a new king. Uh, he meets with David's father. This is where we first meet David's family. Calls all the brothers together and finds the most logical person, the oldest son. Uh, and right before he anoints the oldest son as king, God speaks to Samuel in verse 7 and says this. It's on the screen behind me. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Here it is. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And as you go through the rest of this chapter, brother by brother is rejected. Presumably, it's because of exactly what God said in verse 7, that he's not looking at the outward appearance of them, but the Lord is looking at the heart. Finally, he gets to David, the shepherd. And for some reason, there's something the Lord sees in David's heart, his character that sets him apart from the rest of his brother. There's something about David. You see, I think what's going on is that rather than having this random one-off story in chapter 17 with all of these details that are uh, out of order throwing the storyline off, the author of 1 Samuel is looking backwards to a story about David that demonstrates why he is different. That it illustrates that there is something about David's heart, something's going on in David's heart that's, that isn't there with the rest of his brothers. Right? And all of a sudden, instead of a story about David conquering the giants in his life, this is a story that highlights David's heart posture before his people and his God. See, David sees himself as one who is willing to lay down his life. Remember, he comes to the battlefield and said, who, who is this guy who is taunting our God? No, no one else is going to suit up. I'll suit up. Come on. Right? David is willing to sacrifice. David is willing to give of himself for the sake of others. And this is what the Lord sees in him. And I think there's something profound that happens when we think of the story this way. Because it gives us even a small glimpse into the heart and mind of God. And it shows us what he desires. It shows us what honors him. And the unavoidable conclusion here at this point is that the practice of serving reveals something about our hearts. Serving reveals something about our hearts. David's posture as a servant reveals where his heart is at. Our posture towards serving reveals where our heart is at. Case in point. How many of you, don't raise your hands. How many of you, as soon as I said we're going to talk about serving today, I thought, great, he's going to try and get me to start doing something. It's no judgment for me. I feel the same thing. See, but it does reveal that there's something going on with our response. Serving reveals the heart. Like I said at the beginning, 
I think we often approach this topic assuming a specific motivation for serving. Right? We, we, all of us, we will all answer the question, why should I serve? And how we answer that question, though, makes an enormous difference for what we experience through our serving and what happens to us in our serving. Let me show you what I mean. I want to look at three myths about serving. And I'll say this from the beginning. Today, we're, we're talking specifically about serving here in this community, in this church. That's not because we don't care about serving outside of, of the church. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks, talking about how we engage the world around us. Absolutely essential, but we're going to be laser focused here today. Three myths, though, about serving. These are different ways we answer the question, why should I serve? Here's the first one, the first myth is that you believe you should serve because the church needs you to serve. The church needs you to serve. And I understand that myth. Uh, when we look around here on a Sunday morning, right, you can uh, very quickly quantify all of the work in terms of how many people it may take to pull off a Sunday service. You walked in, you were greeted by uh, some fantastic uh, Connections volunteers. If you have children, they were taken downstairs, checked in, and there's a uh, fantastic group of people who are faithfully serving in LP. Uh, kids, we have people serving in the back for production, on stage, for uh, leading music. We, we have all of these things going on. These are people uh, who are willing to give of their time right now so that we can be in this space. And the easy conclusion to come to, uh, especially in the season of our church, only being 14, 15 weeks old, is that I should serve because the church needs me to serve. But there's a lot going on here. There's a lot that could be done. You may have spotted holes on your way in saying, hey, wait, someone's got to do something about that. Maybe, maybe Maybe that person could do something about it, you know? We can spot those things. There is a lot that could be done, but I think there's something dangerous about this answer. I should serve because the church needs me to serve. And it's not immediately obvious. But just think about it for a moment. If the church needs you to serve, and that's your motivation for it, how do you know if you're really, really pulling your weight? Is it twice a month that meets a need? Is it twice a month as long as you're in town and there's no soccer practice, plus a community service project with your life group twice a year? When are you really pulling your weight? When are you really meeting that need? Actually, I think there's a good chance that when this is your motivation, the church needs me to serve, you'll end up feeling anxious more often than not by uh, serving. Like we, we said, there, there's a lot of ways to serve. There's always more that you could be doing. In fact, if at any given moment you asked me, is there any way I can help out? The answer will always be a resounding yes. Not really knowing what others think about your serving patterns. Are you doing enough? in the eyes of the rest of the team. So if there's more work, plus uh, the church needs you, that equals anxiety. You'll never really know when you're doing enough or when others think you're doing enough. Worse still, when it's about the church needing you, eventually something will happen in your own heart and mind. You'll see yourself as filling more and more needs, more and more holes with less and less people standing up to serve alongside you. This is, fr what, friends, where burnout happens. 
where you're doing too much because you've come to believe that the church is more and more reliant upon you. And, and for that matter, shame on me if I have communicated that to you. But sometimes pastors do a very poor job of protecting the church from this lie we talk about and rely on people as if the whole thing is built around them and them serving. More, more on that in a moment. Here's the, the, the point. The church does not need you to serve. Don't check out on me right here, okay? Got more to it. Myth number two. God needs me to serve. God needs me to serve. The equation is uh, like this. There's lots of serving needs, plus God really needs me to do this for him. But I think there is an unspoken belief that's attached to this, uh, that if God needs you to do this for him, or that, that he does need you to do this for him, so that he will bless me, so that he will be happy with me, so that he will love me just a little bit more. And it may seem odd to say out loud, uh, but many of us know exactly what it's like to be in the kind of relationship where you have to earn affection, where you have to prove your worth, where love is conditional. Friends, if you are serving because you believe in your heart of hearts that God needs this from you, you will inevitably find yourself crushed by worry and guilt Worry over uh, when you have ever actually served enough guilt over never really feeling like you have done enough. What, what we have to see is that God's love for us is not a performance love. It is not a how much love. It is a love of a father who delights in his children, who knows what we need before we open up our mouths to ask, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love. God does not need you to serve. He does not, he does not love you more or less based on how much you contribute. That's a myth. It's a lie. No, by faith in Christ, God loves you perfectly. More on that in a moment. Myth, myth number three, not just the uh, church needs me to serve, that God needs me to serve. Myth number three, and I think, I think this is more a moment of honesty for, for myself, and uh, I'll speak from behalf of Jason and I, uh, and church leadership in general. Myth number three is that I need you to serve. Before we get to the punchline, I want to watch out for this one in my own life, uh, really any church leader for that matter, that I need you to serve somewhere. And uh, to, to be honest, I constantly have to confront this in my life. Because what happens when we believe this myth, when I believe this myth about serving, is that I get so caught up in building my own thing, we get so caught up in building our own thing that people start becoming a means to an end. Relationships become transactional about what you can offer, what you can give to me to help me hit my goals. You are valuable to me in as much as you can meet my needs. And, and I have watched this happen in my own heart over the years. In fact, longer conversation, we could talk about it later. This is one of the things that led to deep, in, deep burnout in, in my life. I've watched people become dollar signs in my mind because I believe this lie. 
I've dehumanized relationships, thinking about people in terms of horsepower and all to accomplish my thing to ensure that I ended up looking good. And I know that in a group like this, some of you have been on the receiving end of this in your church experience, and it hurts. It really hurts to end up feeling used. You may not cleanly identify with any of these myths, but I bring them up because they are sneaky, and slowly but surely, each one of these will come up in our own hearts and minds of the course of many years, and will from time to time, we will from time to time find ourselves answering the question, why should I serve uh, with because the church needs me, or because God needs me, or the leadership needs me to do this. But each one of these answers misses the mark. Friends, the reality is more than any of these even put together, it's not me, it's not the church, it's not God that needs you to serve, it's you. You need you to serve. You need you to serve. Why? Because of what we just said a couple minutes ago. Serving reveals what's actually going on in our hearts. And just like the story of David and Goliath shows what's going on in David's heart, serving shows us where our hearts are aligned or misaligned with God's heart and what he cares about. Let me give you an example. Briefly, a couple of years ago, and Courtney reminded me of this this week. A couple of years ago, Courtney and I were on a global trip working in central Russia, where we inevitably eventually wanted to serve as long-term missionaries. We wanted to serve as church planters there. So we're, you know, fresh out of Bible school, and by Bible school, I basically mean Hogwarts for Christians. Um, we, we are ready to get to work, right? We'd studied Russian for about two years. We'd moved into a building that uh, uh, had uh, primarily Russian speakers. I could have a confident conversation with a five-year-old in Russian who would be a little confused. <laughs> the point is, uh, we felt like we were ready to contribute, we, we, we had done a ton of work to prep for this. And, we, and frankly, I mean, we had a lot to offer. We had a lot to offer here, okay? Felt like we'd done a ton of prep work before the trip, trip was even ready. But the first few weeks, and we were there for a couple months, the first few weeks, we had one job. It wasn't to teach. Uh, it wasn't to meet and build relationships. Again, we could only talk to five-year-olds. It wasn't to run the games. It was to wait until everyone else at camp had gone to bed so that we could clean. Mopping, outhouses, dishes. And on night four or five, I distinctly remember feeling like, I paid to be here? <laughs> what are we doing here? We, we, we could be doing so much more, I mean, we, we, we are qualified for so much more important work than cleaning the bathroom. And you see, what was happening in that moment was that serving was starting to reveal some things in me that I didn't know existed. Man, I came, I came on that trip with fresh eyes, ready to do whatever God wanted me to do, as long as it meant something cool, not cleaning bathrooms. Man, there was an arrogance 
There was a deep level of pride that was coming to the surface and all of these heart issues without a doubt would have had an enormous outsized influence on the work we were able to do later on in the trip. But it was uh, the serving that brought them up to the surface that the Lord began to deal with them. He began to use uh, our, our team around us, our leadership team to start work through, working through these real heart issues that were buried but very real in our lives. See, it wasn't the, the camp that needed us uh, to clean the, the bathrooms. It wasn't my team leader who needed me to clean the bathrooms. It wasn't God who needed me to clean the outhouses. It was me. I needed it. And friends, the same is true for us. When we serve, something happens in our hearts. Let's be a bit more specific and say that uh, not just serving uh, reveals our hearts, serving services our hearts. It is the regular practice of uh, coming before your community and saying, hey, I'm going to lay down my preferences, my desires, my needs, and consider yours and seek to meet your needs here that the Lord uses to profoundly shape and reshape the hearts and minds of his people. And this is what was so clearly modeled for us in the life of Jesus, who did not talk about himself as a warrior or political ruler, but as a servant. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that he came to give away his life for our sake. Those who uh, in our heart of hearts desperately want to be served, that he came to give his life away, not because we did enough uh, for him, not because we served enough for him, but so that he could show his great love for us. You see, Jesus uh, serving reveals his heart for us. And his desire is that we, as his people, would turn around and live as servants in our communities. Right, that we would take up the way of Jesus, not by being served, but by serving, giving away our lives, not for our own good, but also for the good of those around us. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is one of the most profound passages in scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross see Jesus uh, first served us by giving his life for us so that we could find true life in him and give our lives away See, it is in and through serving one another that we become more and more like Jesus. Serving services the heart. All of that is my introduction for talking about serving here. See, only now that we have worked through all of that, I think can we have a conversation about what serving that services the heart looks like here in this specific context. Remember, we, we, there's so many ways we could talk about this, so many ways this weeds outside of this place and into our communities, and we are going to get there. Not today, but we are going to get there. 
And all of what I say next, all of it, I want you to remember it uh, with the unspoken context uh, of, you know, it's not that I need you to serve. It's not that uh, the church needs you to serve. It's not that God needs you to serve, but that you desperately need you to serve. Remember at LifePoint, this core value we, we are talking about today is called personal ministry. And so the question is, while you are here in this community, what is your personal ministry? Where are you serving? Well, if we think just about Sunday mornings for a moment, there are three major arenas of uh, serving. The connections team, the music and production team, and LifePoint Kids Life team. I mean, each of these teams has unique opportunities for uh, serving, whether that's through face-to-face interactions with folks coming in to create a hospitable and uh, welcoming environment, getting things physically set up for Sunday morning, uh, teaching or leading our uh, kids. But I would say if there's one area uh, where our campus has room for a lot of growth, it's with LifePoint Kids. This, I think, uh, is the hardest place to serve because of what it asks of you. That twice a month, you spend all the same amount of energy uh, to get up, get ready, get out the door, to get here, only to go downstairs for the entire service. And you have to get here earlier than everybody else. Fortunately, you get paid, right? (laughs) No. But if I may, let me summarize it this way. And this is not just true of LifePoint Kids, but I think it's particularly true of LifePoint Kids. Twice a month, you are committing to the hard work of heart work as you prepare to get up early, get the kids ready, fed, and out the door to arrive here before almost everybody else does. And when you get downstairs, welcoming kids, holding babies, breaking up fights, singing and uh, teaching or leading a craft, you are doing more than just babysitting. You are in a very unique position of being able to share and show the love of Jesus to little hearts and little minds that God has entrusted to your care, that God has entrusted to our care. More than that, you are undergoing an open heart surgery of sorts wherein the Holy Spirit is actively at work, shaping and reshaping, bringing more and more alignment between your heart and the heart of Jesus, forming you to be more and more like him. Yes, you may miss the sermon, though for some of you that's more of a feature than a bug. But you are no less impacted by the work of the Holy Spirit as you avail your heart to be serviced through serving. Friends, I don't need you to serve. Church doesn't need you to serve. God doesn't need you to serve. You need you to serve. I need me to serve. Let me ask this. As we're wrapping up, what's your next step? What is your next step? Well, it may be to say, hey, you're right. I I need to be serving. I, I need to be somewhere. I'll raise my hand. I'll I'll sign a list. I'll, you know, fill out a form, whatever. That may be your next step. And actually, if you're following along in the notes, we have links in the notes to sign up for one of our teams, either the Connections team or the LP Kids team. We also have QR codes that are going to be on the screen behind me where you can see, uh, you can scan that code and uh, be taken to a form to start that conversation and say, hey, I I, want to jump in. I want to be all in. 
That may be you. Notice none of you are taking out your phones to scan the QR code. It's all good. That may be you. It also may be true that you need a moment. You need to say with the Lord, have a conversation. God, how have you specifically equipped me to serve? I've just talked about three ways today. It's a whole host of ways that God uses his people in the life of the church. And so maybe your next step is to have a conversation with me or Jason today or next week saying, hey, I'm, I'm toying with this idea. What do I need to do to take a next step? Where do I need to plug in? Where do I need to serve? Because I need me to serve. Maybe it's a conversation with your life group this week conversation where you uh, sit back and say, guys, where are we rolling up our sleeves and saying, we need us to serve? Friends, I, I know that I, I know I've gone along on this one, but it's because the question of why should I serve and the answer we give is phenomenally important. It will either lead us to a train wreck of our own uh, walk with God, just wrestling with guilt and shame and worry. Or when we recognize that it's us who need us to serve, we avail ourselves to great work of the Holy Spirit to continue to shape, form, and mold us more and more to the image of Jesus. Let's pray. And we'll close in song. <laughs> Father, even now, it, it may be that uh, some of us need a moment. Need to have a conversation uh, with you. Maybe it's to confess that we have bought into one of these myths. Or just name it, that that's what's been driving us in the past Father, we ask that you'd continue to preach to us long after we leave this place by your Holy Spirit. Make known to us what you have for us, what you want to do in and through our lives, through serving, that we would take on the way of Jesus, who came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Remind us, Lord, that we serve not to uh, grab things from you, not to earn things from you, but we serve because we have already received your affection and care and love. It's out of the overflow of our lives. So we thank you, Lord. We trust you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.